Thank you for tuning in to Emmanuel Faith Community Church. We hope you enjoy today's sermon. Welcome, Emmanuel Faith. It is so good to see you this morning. If you're joining us online, a special welcome to you as well. And if you're joining us at the 5 p.m., I miss you. Welcome. We're glad you're here. Uh, Happy third Sunday of Advent to you. And if you are new with us, we're on this journey towards the manger in Bethlehem together. And we are in a season in the church calendar that we call Advent. And Advent is different from Christmas. Advent means arrival. And it's a season where as followers of Jesus, we remember that we live in between two affirmations that Christ has come and that Christ will what? Come again. The famous theologian Karl Barth once wrote, what other time or season can or will the church ever have but that of Advent? And what his point was, is that we, we celebrate Advent at a certain point every year, but really we live every single one of our days in this liminal space in between these two affirmations, Christ, you've come and Christ, you will come again. And we are all waiting. The question is not whether or not we will wait in life. The question is, will we wait well? And one of the ways we wait well is by inviting and engaging the presence of God in our life today. And to that end, over the last few weeks, we've been studying out of the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 9. So if you have your Bible, would you open there with me, Isaiah chapter 9. It'll be a passage that's familiar to you if you've been with us over the last few weeks. It's a prophecy that was given about a king who would come and rule and reign. It's a prophecy about light that would be given and spoken into the darkness. And listen to the way the chapter begins. Isaiah chapter 9 verse 1 reads like this. But there will be no, what? Gloom. For her who was in anguish for the former time brought into contempt the land of Zebulon, the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he's made glorious the way of the sea and the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. And Isaiah's pointing out, listen, there is, there's gloom. And certainly there was gloom in Isaiah's day. There was gloom morally, politically, socially. The nation of Israel was in darkness. And so this prophecy of light would have hit them with a sense of gravitas. Listen to what he said next. But the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Everybody say great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them the light has shone. And you almost get the picture of somebody who's been holding their breath underwater for as long as they can, finally coming up to the surface and gasping for breath. The darkness is destroyed by this great light that was going to shine. Now the question becomes, how does God's radiant light shine amongst his people? I'm so glad you asked that question because Isaiah actually answers it. You're so dialed in. Listen to what he said, verse six. He said, for to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And I just want to point this out once again. I love the fact that Isaiah points out the son is given. He's not earned. He's not produced. He's not deserved. The son is just simply graced. He's given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder and he shall be called 
wonderful counselor, mighty God, say it with me, church, everlasting father and prince of peace, of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. I love that Isaiah says he will. Not, not he might, or if things go according to plan, he could. Isaiah is definitive. It will happen. And if you read through this passage, you can understand why the nation of Israel is hoping and longing for and, and even expecting a military and political ruler. I mean, the government is going to be upon his shoulders. He's going to rule and he's going to reign. And so when Jesus came and he taught, listen, my kingdom is not of or from this world. They probably looked at Isaiah chapter nine and went, well, what's the deal then? What's the deal? And it's at this point that we need to recognize that while his kingdom is now, it is also not yet. His kingdom's been inaugurated, but it has not come in all of its fullness yet. See, see we get to taste his peace now today. Amen? Amen? Right? But we are still waiting for a day when that peace will permeate the entire world, aren't we? And we get to taste his joy today, right now. But I'm guessing that there's a sense of joy that we will experience in heaven one day that we cannot even fathom right now. Amen? Amen. So it's now and it's not yet. That there's a sense of God's love that we know now, but there's also a sense of his love that we will only know when we are face to face. And so we too live in this liminal space, this in between. But the question remains, how in the world does God breathe light into darkness? Well, he breathes light into the darkness by a child who would be born. Now, not just any child, but this is God himself coming to live and dwell among us. And I love the fact that this child cannot be summarized or contained in only one name. Don't you love that? That God is so multifaceted, he's so complex, he's so beautiful, he's so majestic, that he needs multiple names in order to describe him. (laughs) We're just looking at four of them during this Advent season, but there are innumerable more names given to him in the scriptures. We've already looked at Wonderful Counselor. We've looked at Mighty God. And today we add another name to that list, the name of Everlasting Father. It's a name that's a more personal name, isn't it? More more intimate. It's a name that probably stirs up some emotion within us. Maybe some really positive emotion, maybe some really difficult, challenging emotion. I I can remember the day that I found out I was going to be a father. It was actually on our anniversary when my wife told me that she was pregnant and that we were going to have a child. Now we were going to the wild animal park to sort of walk around that day. And so we snapped this picture and this is a picture of me and Kelly on the day that we found out that we were going to be parents. Aww. Right. Okay. And, and so for the next seven months, we spent time preparing 
Um, we, we read as many parenting books as we could get our hands on. By that, I mean Kelly read as many parenting books as she could get her hands on. And I was like, what'd you learn, right? And we were committed to doing our best not to screw this thing up, right? I mean, it was a lot of pressure that we felt almost immediately right on our shoulders. And the night that we welcomed our son, Ethan, into the world was a night that changed our world forever. I can remember holding him for the very first time, thinking, gosh, I didn't, I didn't know I could love someone this much. And, um, and his hat sort of looks like an elf hat, doesn't it? <laughs> um, I didn't notice that the night of, but I do now. And I, I, it just felt like someone was like forcing air into a balloon and like my heart was just expanding beyond the capacity that I thought it could go to. Uh, see, we'd, we'd read all of those books. We've gotten ready, but nothing could prepare us for this sense of and the weightiness of the responsibility that was now on our shoulders. And I can remember strapping that young infant into a car seat, putting the car seat into the car and starting to drive away from the hospital. Anybody else, parents remember that? And I had this distinct feeling like, they trust us? Like no one, like the professionals aren't coming to make sure we're okay? Like, do, they, do they know that we've never done this before and we have no clue what we're doing and please Jesus protect this child? And I was in the car and I have never been so attentive driving in my life. People are zooming past me. I'm probably going five miles an hour below the speed limit. Everybody else is driving like maniacs. And I am just like the most defensive driver. I wish I had bumpers on that car, man. Like protect this child. I didn't know that sense of weightiness. And even if you're not a parent in this room tonight, you know that weight of responsibility. You know what it's like to love so much that it hurts. You know what it's like to love so much that you would do anything for somebody. That you might even give your own self for them. And as I mentioned, this name, Everlasting Father of all the names, probably stirs up the most emotion in us, doesn't it? Because some of us read this and we're viscerally aware that there will be an empty seat around our table this Christmas because we've lost a father that we love. Some of you read this and there's a, a deep sense of grief because your relationship with your earthly father isn't what you hoped it would be. And maybe your earthly father was abusive or maybe your earthly father was distant or maybe your earthly father failed you in a thousand different ways. So to read that God is like an everlasting father, my guess is it stirs up some things in some of us where you start to go, I'm not sure I wanna go there. Counselor, counsel me, please God. Mighty God, be mighty in me. Prince of Peace, bring it on. I want more of that. But Father, um, all of our earthly fathers were imperfect. Can we just amen to that? But some of you had fathers who were worse than others. And so this stirs up all sorts of things in you. And I just want you to know we have space for you today. We have space for the pain of going, gosh, I wish that we were parents and it just isn't happening. 
We have space for if you've lost somebody around your table and it's just gonna be a really hard year. I just wanna acknowledge all of those things so that we can then open ourselves up to God and say, God, if this is true about you, we wanna receive it in the way that you want us to receive it. We wanna hear from you today in a way that maybe starts to break down some walls that we've built up to you in our minds and in our hearts. And we wanna invite you to move afresh in us today. See, the enemy knows that one of God's designs is that we would look at our fathers and that they would be a reflection of his love. And so he has attacked that role from the beginning of time. And my prayer is that today we might take back a little bit of ground. Amen? So before we jump into this explanation of the radiant name Everlasting Father, I think we need to do a bit of theology. I hope that doesn't scare you, but we we do need to at least acknowledge that Isaiah says in verse 6, a son is given, and then he names the son Everlasting Father. Does this cause any sort of questions to rise up in you um, or am I alone? I hope I'm not alone. It's really awkward to be standing on the stage alone. I guess I am alone right now, but, but please enter in with me. Like Jesus is the son of God. He pray, he invites us to pray, pray to God, Abba, father, daddy. I mean, hasn't Isaiah heard of the Trinity? Is he conflating the father and the son into one? How can Jesus, the Messiah, the second person of the Godhead, also be called the everlasting father? I think the great preacher Charles Spurgeon captured it well when he said this. He said, the son is not the father and neither is the father the son. And though they be one God, essentially and eternally, being forevermore one and indivisible, yet still the distinction of persons is to be carefully believed and observed. He says, listen, this passage isn't attempting to conflate and combine the son and the father into one person. God in three persons, blessed Trinity. He goes on in that sermon on this text to say, Our text has no bearing upon the position and titles of the three persons with regard to each other. It does not indicate the relation of deity to itself, but the relation of Jesus Christ to us. He is to us the everlasting father. And it hit me this week. I I was out on um, just one of my early morning walks and I was just praying, God, how in the world is Jesus both the son and everlasting father. Like Jesus, help me understand how you're both the father and the son. And I just sensed God whisper to me, Ryan, you're a father and a son. And I was like, I am. Like, I'm a son to my parents and I'm a father to my kids. And I just sensed him saying, well, that's, that's the same way that it works with me. I've settled on viewing Jesus as fatherly and that he exhibits the characteristics of a good father. 
See, Jesus rules and reigns not as a cold dictator, but as a compassionate father. That all throughout the scriptures, we see God described as a father. In Exodus chapter 4, verse 22, he calls Israel his firstborn. In Psalm 103, the psalmist writes about the character of God and says, The Lord is like a father. Well, what kind of father is he like? He's tender, like, like, he's engaged. He cares. He sees you. He's not overly harsh. He's not vindictive. He's not angry. He's not mean. He's compassionate. His heart goes out to you, to those who fear him. And Jesus embodies this character, the character of a father. Now, if I wanted to teach on God in general as father, we would have a number of passages to turn to. But I was wrestling with this because I want to teach on Jesus as embodying the character of an everlasting father. And I wrestled with it and I wrestled with it and I wrestled with it. And then I had one of those moments that you pray for as a preacher when, when, the, when the clouds just sort of part and a passage that just I'd never seen this way just stood out and became radiant to me. And my hope is that it becomes radiant to you. Will you flip over to Luke chapter eight with me? Luke chapter eight. Because in order to see Jesus as the everlasting father, I think we need to see this character that he exhibits in action. And I hope that you have the passage in front of you if it's on a phone or an iPad or an actual paper Bible, because I'm not gonna put the story up on the screens. It's more of a narrative and I'm just gonna invite you to enter in and read along and listen along. Starting in verse 40, listen to what Luke recorded for us. He said, and now when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him for they were all waiting for him. And I just loved this Advent echo in the passage. They're waiting for him. He's been off in Gennesaret and now he's coming back to Galilee. Verse 41. And there came a man named Jairus who was a ruler of the synagogue. He was probably one of the main elders in the synagogue, a prominent man in town. And he held a place of authority and respect in the city. His name, by the way, means he will give light. How cool is that? And after falling at Jesus's feet, he implored him to come to his house for his only daughter, everybody say daughter, was about 12 years of age and she was dying. I want you to keep that number 12 in your head. It's gonna be important in just a moment. And as Jesus went, the people pressed in around him. This word pressed in, in a parable Jesus tells, he, he uses that same word to talk about the way that the thorns choke out the seed that was planted. So the pressing in isn't sort of like they're patting Jesus. It's like they are crowding in around him. Think, think Main Street, Disneyland, after the fireworks show. Pressing in around him. And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years. How many years? Wow, what a coincidence, you guys. My goodness. This girl, 12 years old. This woman bleeding for 12 years. And immediately what we see is that these are not two stories that we're supposed to read in parallel. 
They're two stories that we're supposed to see intertwined. And she thought, or, and though she had spent all of her living on physicians, she could not be healed by any. So she came up behind Jesus and she touched the fringe of his garment and immediately her discharge of blood was ceased. This word in the Greek, uh, touched, it literally means grasped or clutched at his garment. Now, um, in, on Hebrew, uh, male Hebrew garments in the ancient world, they had four tassels, one on each corner of the robe. Um, if you're interested, you can read about that in Numbers chapter 15. Um, they don't have that same tradition today, but what they do have is prayer shawls. And on a prayer shawl, you can see that there are tassels on each corner. Uh, according to Numbers chapter 15, the tassels were supposed to be woven with blue thread and the tassels represented the law. They represented the commands and they were a reminder that every time a Jewish man put on a robe that they were to be people who were obedient to Torah or, or be obedient to the rule of God. And so you have this woman who's forcing her way through this crowd and she reaches out to touch one of the tassels that's hanging off his robe. By the way, I love the fact that this woman is pulling on Jesus's clothes. If you're a parent, you know that feeling full well, do you not? And Jesus said, who was it that touched me? Now, now does Jesus know who touched him? Yeah, okay, good. Glad we're on the same page there. When all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowd surrounds you and are pressing in on you. But Jesus said, someone touched me, for I perceived that the power had gone out from me. I love Peter here. He's like, come on, Jesus, like, let's just get on with it. Let, let's keep moving. You've got business to do. Someone touched me for the power had gone out from me. Verse 47. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling. I mean, probably her worst nightmare is coming true. This woman who has been in the shadows for at least 12 years is being called into the light. When she saw that she was not hidden. You can almost feel the narrative slow down, can't you? It's frantic up until this point. But here it just comes to a crawl. And falling down before him, she declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been healed. And he, Jesus, said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. You've heard of a, a tale of two cities, I presume. This story is a tale of two daughters. See, I, I'd always read this as a story of one daughter and one woman, but it's actually a tale of two daughters because whose daughter is she? She's Jesus' daughter. She, she, she's his daughter. 
that in the same way that Jairus cares about his 12-year-old girl, when Jesus calls her daughter, Jesus is saying, I care about you in the same way that Jairus cares about his daughter. And I love it. This passage became radiant to me because the light of Christmas, it shines bright through Jesus's fatherly love. These two stories, they don't just run in parallel. They are meant to be read as one. Jairus, the good father who pushes through the crowd to get to the feet of Jesus so that his daughter can be healed. Jairus doing what any good father would do on behalf of his kids. Everything within his power to make sure that his daughter receives the care that she needs. And when you look at Jairus, there's this almost like frantic nature. I have got to get to the feet of Jesus. He's making a fool of himself. A prominent man in society making a fool of himself in the hopes that this itinerant Jewish rabbi would come to his house and speak a word over his daughter. And I know that, that some of you have experienced the the pain of losing a child. I, I cannot imagine what that's like. And I know as a parent that you would do anything, anything to protect and to care for your kids, regardless of how old they get. That is never something that's off to the side in our lives, is it? Amen. And it's set in parallel, these two stories, one of Jairus forcing his way through the crowd and then Jesus halting the crowd to look for his daughter. Calling the crowd to stop so that his daughter could emerge. See, Jairus is chasing after Jesus for healing. And it turns out Jesus is chasing after this woman with the same kind of passion and the same kind of fortitude. Why? Because he has the character of an everlasting father and he has an enduring pursuit for his kids. And when Jesus calls this woman daughter, he's telling everyone watching and everyone who's reading now, I feel the same way about this woman that this father feels about his daughter. So pause for a moment and just take that in. That the God of the universe, the king of it all, in the same way that Jairus makes a fool of himself to go after Jesus, God himself makes a fool of himself to come after us. I mean, listen to the way that the book of Philippians would put it. That Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God something to be grasped. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Friends, he emptied himself, was born in the likeness of a human being. He was laid in a manger and he died on a cross. He made a fool of himself to declare to you that the God of the universe is like the hound of heaven. That he is chasing after you, running after you, coming after you and calling you out. Not because he wants to shame you, but because he wants to shower you with his love. And I'm not sure if you feel pursued today. But I want to assure you, assure you that you are. The scriptures say that Jesus stands at the door and knocks. And he says, if anyone would hear my voice, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. This is the God who pursues. He's the everlasting father pursuing you today, knocking at your door. But I think the fa my favorite part of this story is when Jesus says, who touched me? 
and everything around him pauses. It just comes to a screeching halt, doesn't it? If it's a movie, it's in slow motion and there's, there's some music playing behind that makes it seem a little bit more dramatic. And this woman has to be thinking, this is not going to turn out well for me. See, because the law of Moses said that if she was bleeding, she was unclean, which meant she wasn't allowed to touch anyone. It also meant that she was not allowed to enter the temple. She wasn't allowed to enter synagogue. She wasn't allowed to be a part of the people of God and the gatherings of God. This was a a rule put in place to protect the health of the community back in the ancient world. So catch this, all of these layers that are just stacking on one another, the tassels represented the what? The law, the same law that said she wasn't allowed to touch anyone. Uh, Jairus is who? He's a synagogue ruler. He's probably one of the people that was partially responsible for making sure she stayed out of the synagogue. And undoubtedly, when Jesus hits pause and the whole scene goes into slow motion, she thinks, well, here it goes. Here it goes. I'm, I'm going to be told off. They're going to make a mockery of me. They're going to, they're going to shame me. And I love the way that Jesus responds to her. He doesn't call her unclean. He doesn't chastise her. He cares for her. Jesus seems to be strangely attracted, sort of like a moth to light, to weakness, to sickness, to pain. He is going after us when we are in pain, not to heap more on, but to rescue us. Why? Because he's a steadfast protector. In the midst of all of the people who called this woman discardable, Jesus calls her daughter. And in a society where she was deemed unclean, Jesus cleanses her. He protects her. He provides for her. It's what any good father would do. And it's what Jesus does in this passage. I love the way that the psalmist beautifully captures this heart of God. Here's what he says. He says, sing to God praises to his name. Lift up a song to him who rides through the deserts. His name is the Lord. Exult before him. Father of the fatherless, protector of the widows is God in his holy habitation. God settles the solitary in a home. He leads out the prisoners to prosperity, but the rebellious dwell in a parched land. Father to the fatherless, provider, protector, putting them in a home where they can be cared for. See, when you are broken, when you're in need of mercy, and when you reach out to Jesus, he responds to you in the exact same way he responded to this woman. And I'm sure that what was going through her mind might be a similar thing that's going through some of your minds when you step into a church. Things like, I I don't belong here. Things like if you knew what was going on in my life, certainly I would be kicked out or relegated to the side and you would not want anything to do with me. Thoughts like, gosh, my shame and guilt just heaps on my shoulders when I walk in these doors and I can just feel it. And I just wanna tell you that those feelings are alive from the pit of hell, that Jesus, King of Kings, Lord of Lords, does not look at you to shame you. He looks at you to redeem you. When you come to him in faith, he responds to you with 
love. Every single time, every single time. And I love the fact that Jesus calls out this woman. He stops and he brings her out of the shadows. And he says, who was it that touched me? Who was it that touched me? And then he waits, evidently an uncomfortable amount of time because Peter's like, Jesus, like, let's just get on with it. Jairus is probably like, let's get on with it. And this woman is probably like, please get on with it. I'm comfortable just being in the shadows. Just let me get my healing and let me go on to live a life that's devoid of the loneliness and isolation that I have been plagued with for 12 years. Thank you, Jesus. Go. It's all good now. But Jesus doesn't let her get away with it. So what's, what's up with that? Like, why, why the theatrics? Why, why the stopping of the story? Why, why clicking into slow motion? See, here's the thing. Here's the thing. Catch this, friends. Jesus calls her out because he is not interested in drive-by vending machine dispensed healings. He's interested in relationships. He does not want to only restore her body. He wants to give dignity back to her soul. And he knows the way that I do that is by reminding her of who she really is. He shines a spotlight on the woman, not to shame her, but to shower her with love. Why? Because he wants to know that it's not just the crowd that he loves. He loves her. He has an individual affection for her. I know, I know. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believed in him would not perish but have everlasting life. I believe that with every fiber of my being. I hope it's held up in between the goalposts at every football game. Praise be to God, right? I believe that. But understanding that God loves you is different than knowing that God loves the world. See, you can know that God loves the world and it's a nice sentimental thought. But when you know that he loves you, it becomes a transformative reality. See, I I love my kids, but that hits a little bit different, I think, than telling you, gosh, I I love, I love Ethan. He's smart, he's driven, he's caring. I love Avery. Uh, She's sensitive, she's witty, she's thoughtful. I love Reed. He's, he's creative. He's passionate. He's tenderhearted. And see, what if God looks at us and he doesn't just say, I love you. All you. What if he looks at each one of us and he says, Jed, I love you. Audrey, I love you. Bill, I love you. Dinah, I love you. And then he's got a list of reasons that he loves us. That's what a a father would do, isn't it? The prophet Isaiah would write this about God. 
He says, I've loved you, my people, with an everlasting love, with an unfailing love. I have drawn you to myself. I love it. God's saying, come to me, touch, touch my robe, touch my robe, grab my, grab my hand, know my heart. I long for your good. I long for your restoration. I long for your healing. This woman is called out of the crowd to know that Jesus loves her and sees her. And it strikes me, Jesus acknowledges that there's a power that's released from him. And then he goes on to say, daughter, your, say it with me, church. Faith has made you well. Go in peace. These four words, made you well, are actually one Greek word. It's the word sozo. Will you say that with me? Sozo. And it's where we get our English word to save. You could literally, literally read this. Daughter, your faith has saved you, has saved you, has redeemed you, has made you whole. I'm struck by the reality that faith doesn't always result in physical healing, but it always results in saving. And it wasn't the quantity of her faith. It was this little mite of faith where she reached out and said, gosh, if I could just touch the corner of his robe, maybe, maybe just maybe, he would heal and restore what's broken in me. And just like Jairus pushes through the crowd to find Jesus and to get to Jesus, she pushed through the crowd too. She just didn't have the social standing in order to make it okay for her to do it. But she threw all of that out the window and said, if I can just get in his presence. Now don't miss this friends, please. If you don't hear anything else, please hear this today, that it is possible for you to brush up against Jesus and not have it transform you at all. It's possible to be in proximity with him, but not have it transform you. I think sometimes it happens when we go to church a lot. Like we're just in proximity to Jesus and it's like he's just walking by. And what this woman teaches us is no, 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 no. There's hundreds of people in this crowd, but her faith stops Jesus because she reaches out for him and says, I need a touch from you. And what does he do? Oh, he meets her with a gracious Eternal restoration. See, there's a way to brush up against Jesus that makes no difference, but there is a way to passionately, ferociously grasp for him that changes everything. We call that faith. Faith is not just, I believe in you, Jesus. Faith is, I'm going after you. I long for you. Like a deer pants for water, so my soul longs for you. In a dry and weary land where there is no water, Jesus, I am going after you. And here's the beautiful thing about this picture that we're painted is that faith is the very thing that brings this woman face to face with God. And I wonder, I wonder what kind of pain, just like her, you're holding on to. See, because so much of the time, our pain causes us to shrink into the background. If we can go, I just want to be a wallflower. I just want to, just want to come and I just want to experience it, but I don't really want to be a part of it. And Jesus says, no, 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 don't let your pain relegate you to the sidelines. Let it propel you to the feet of the Messiah. Because that's where the transformation happens. So 
What might this look like for us today? I think it means that for some of us, we've got to acknowledge that maybe we're a little bit more like this woman than we'd like to admit. There's some, there's some pain and there's some hurt inside of us. And the question is, will we just blend in with the crowd or are we gonna go after Jesus? And say, God, I need you. Uh, maybe it means that we've gotta show a little bit of perseverance. And, and I think for, for some people in this room, that, that, that father wound is so strong that it causes us to, to wanna withdraw. And I think Jesus's invitation today is to push through that pain to get to him so that you can see his eyes looking at you, knowing his love. And maybe for some, it's, we've got to shed some of those things that make us just want to withdraw into the crowd. Maybe for some, it's believing, gosh, if he really sees me and really touches me, maybe, just maybe, there's still power in that today. Let me encourage you to reach out to Jesus. And I assure you that when you do that, with all of your brokenness and all of your quote unquote uncleanness and all of your sin, just like this woman, he doesn't look at you and say, how dare you? How could you get away from me? He looks at you and he says, daughter, son, like a frantic father. I've been pursuing you and I want to protect you and I want to shower my love down on you and I want to restore you. And so maybe this Christmas, we don't just celebrate the birth of Christ. Maybe this Christmas we can rest in the fatherly love of Jesus. Maybe this Christmas we see him calling us son, calling us daughter, calling us out so that he can shower us with love. I wanna invite you to, to put your things away and we're gonna end our time together just a little bit differently today because I, wanna, I just wanna give you some space to meet with Jesus and I, and I wanna do it in a way that will be familiar for some, but maybe unfamiliar for others. I want us to do a practice together called imaginative prayer. But here's the first step in this. I just want you to get your heart quiet and would you just ask God, God, would you reveal to me pain, hurt, frustration, sorrow, however you wanna name it, that you would invite me to bring to you just like this woman, God, show me how I am maybe more like her than I think. And in just a few moments, I'm gonna lead us in a time of prayer where we just imagine ourselves back in this story. So would you go before God and ask him what he might wanna to bring to mind? I want you to imagine yourself 
just walking down a, a dirt road towards a courtyard area that's just jam-packed full of people. Shoulder to shoulder, there's a buzz in the crowd because Jesus of Nazareth is in town. And would you just name that, whatever that pain, that hurt is that the spirit revealed to you. And then I want you to imagine yourself today forcing your way through the crowd. Even maybe just imagine somebody standing in your way and every polite thing in you wants to just pause. But would you keep going? Keep pushing your way through. Until finally in the middle of it all, you get down on your your knees and, and you just reach out to grab one of those tassels hanging off the four corners of his robe. And I want you to imagine yourself just holding it, not, not letting go and, until it gets awkward that you might tear his robe off. So then you let go. Would you imagine yourself then backing off as quickly as you could, but hoping beyond all hope that whatever that pain you've brought to him, you don't carry away with you. And then I want you to imagine Jesus calling the crowd to stop and saying, who touched me? Maybe you're backing off even more, hoping that people crowd in around you so that Jesus doesn't make eye contact with you. But in your, in your mind's eye, would you just, I'd invite you to just look up at him. And you can just admit, Jesus, it was me. I touched you. And would you just tell him Why? going on would you ask him to restore would you ask him to touch you would you ask him to heal you and then after he makes eye contact with you and you finally raise your head to look at him. Would you hear him say to you this morning, daughter, my son, I've been pursuing you. I'm not going to shame you. I want to protect you. Would you hear him say to you that he loves the world, but that he also loves you, specifically you? 
And would you hear him say, oh, child, I long to restore, to make well, to save. Jesus, thank you for being not just our wonderful counselor and a mighty God and a prince of peace. Thank you for being an everlasting father. Would you reign in us as that good father? today. And Lord, we are so grateful that when Isaiah prophesied about your coming, Jesus, that he didn't just say that you're a father, but an everlasting father, that we can be confident that we will experience your pursuit, your protection, your affection, and your restoration, not just now, but forevermore. Thank you. In Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to our service. We'd love to have you join us in person. For more information about our church and service times, please visit efcc.org. If you would like to support the ministries of Emmanuel Faith, you can do so at efcc.org give.